Hello and welcome to Pod Songs, where we interview inspirational people in service to others as inspiration for a new song. Today, my guest and co host is the Indian rock singer Uday Benegal of Indus Creed, and his guest is the telepathic animal communicator Manjiri Latte. Hi there, Jack. Hey, Uday, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm great, mate. So what's the agenda for today? <laughs> Telepathic animal communication. Oh, indeed. Yeah. This is going to be fun. I mean, it's just the title alone is going to bring <laughs> yeah. people in. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, I guess it would. Sure. Yeah, rock singer, rock singer interviews telepathic animal communicator. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I hope it's interesting. It's an interesting title. Let's hope the, the show is interesting itself. I mean, the conversation. Yeah, yeah. It should be. I'm sure, I'm sure Manjri has very interesting things to say. Yeah. Let's see how that unfolds. Where are you? Where are you in Mumbai or? Uh, um... I'm in Goa. I'm in Goa. Goa. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't live in Bombay anymore. Mumbai, okay. I try to limit my, uh, my, my time there as much as I can. Just mm. become... It's a crazy city that's gone. I mean, it's, it's a downward spiral that looks uh, impossible to reverse. Basically. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine the air is a lot fresher. I've never been to Goa, but. Goa is a lovely place, but it's, 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 a, it's incredible. It's pretty interesting how in the last few years, in this post-pandemic world, or this post-pandemic country at least, it's in the last year, year and a half, it's as if people have been trying to make up for lost time. And in Goa, the amount of construction that has been taking place, which means construction means destruction, actually, because yeah. it's the cutting off insane uh, number of trees and stuff like that. We've got water problems already, but there's such a myopia here in this country about all this stuff. The prime minister likes to, his propaganda machine is, is fantastic. I mean, they're really very effective. <laughs> Because they say a bunch of things. He does exactly the opposite and no one seems to notice. And over and over again. Yeah. It's just the way things are, I guess. Politics, yeah. 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 And are you by the beach or are you whereabouts are you? I'm close to the water. I'm I'm not by I'm I'm at a point where the main river of Goa is called the Mandovi. So where the Mandovi empties or meets with the Arabian Sea is where my neighborhood is. So it's very lovely here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but like I said, it is very, very lovely, but it's going mm-hmm. every, every week I can see, I don't like to use words like development because that's a positive word. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> everything, everything connected to the word development now is a, is a terrible thing, unfortunately. I think it's like every, everyone who goes to a place like Goa or, or, or Bali, you know, in the early days. Mm-hmm. You know, you just you're going to be more and more disappointed every year because the the thing yeah. you came for is destroyed by the people who come after you. Absolutely. Yeah, and you're part of the yeah. problem because you're you're coming there as well. Absolutely. You're telling people I'm here, yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, you're such a cool guy, and everyone wants to go there as well. And yeah, so eventually they'll just be this. We'll be gathered around this one tree. Absolutely, yeah. exactly. Uh, exactly. Uh, but you're winning. Whole- Sorry? But you've just been on a, a retreat to get back to nature. Yeah, you've just come back from this this retreat. Well, that was when we last spoke. I had just returned at that time. Okay. Like a few weeks ago. So, yes, I was freshly back from that. Freshly pumped, freshly 
That sounded energized. amazing. Yeah, yeah. I looked at some videos online. It looked really cool. Yeah. But the thing is, it's always it's always a tricky thing coming back into mainstream human society. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's always the challenge. Yeah. And did it work? Can you can you talk to the animals now? Can you? Well, I mean, the thing is, uh, the tele. Honest, we honestly, I've even when I did the first animal communication course with Manjari, which was last year, and that was only on Zoom, and I was a little skeptical first before doing it. Not skeptical about the course itself, but whether how effective it would be doing it on something like Zoom. And it was mm. fantastic. Mm. And that's really when it began. Um, while I'm doing the animal communication course, and of course I try to employ it with, say for example, the, the six, uh, and I'm learning to get away from words like stray and street. Somebody suggested uh, free living dogs. Mm. Because there's nothing stray about them. They, I mean, they, they know exactly where they're going and where they are. They haven't gone astray. But there are six who live outside my building and uh, in the street outside. And I meet them every, almost every day. I give them breakfast in the morning and I play with them. And they allow me to rub their bellies, which is very therapeutic for me. And in the course of that, I met a couple of, couple of pups in the house next door, that I'm, both of whom I foster. So I've been trying to employ it with them uh, in a telepathic sense, yes. Uh, does seem to work sometimes because I, I would say that, for example, there's one particular dog that I have a very close connection with, uh, one of the dogs outside, like called Chickpea. And I've tried a few times. There are times when I won't necessarily be looking at her, she's not looking at me. And I send a little message about something, either to come to me or something like that. And uh, it often works. Most of the time it does. She's also a very free-spirited dog, so she does her own thing. So, uh, but yeah, I see it working. I see it uh, in. Com it's not like I'm actively necessarily having two-way conversations with uh, mm -hmm. animals. But the truth is, I did the course and I did the advanced course, which is the more recent thing as well, which was part animal communication and a lot more general, much wider consciousness. I got into it because of consciousness, wanting to expand my consciousness. Yes, through telepathy, communicating with animals that may be of, uh, maybe in need or may do with my help or something. Usually it's me who needs their help. I've, I've noticed more and more. I do uh, try and use it that way, but really for me, it's more about uh, just being in tune with the world in general, mm. all, all beings, all creatures. And going beyond creatures, I mean, what we went through with in the, the recent course, the advanced course was, you can communicate with uh, your finances, you can communicate with uh, parts of your body, you can communicate with anything, anything, because everything is consciousness finally, everything is finally part of the big fabric of consciousness, I think. Wow. What we see as, what we see as uh, solid material things is really just and this is where science supports it all. It's all electromagnetic frequency, finally, that uh, has different densities. So what you think as solid as is like the stable, is just, I guess, electrons or atoms or whatever it is, vibrating at different speeds and frequencies, which gives the impression of solidity. And of course, makes it then impenetrable or partly penetrable or something like that. Mm. I mean, the deeper one goes into it, at least in terms of an understanding, Conceptually, it, it makes a lot of sense applying it to one's day-to-day -day life in a material world of which I'm very much part of a material world. That's the hard part. And that's, that's part of a journey for me. Mm. Yeah.
Oh, so you did the Vipassana courses as well, uh, and you started a yes. band of whirling calipers, which is a really... Uh... <laughs> did, you get, did you catch the, the word calipers? Not too many people have caught. Yeah, you've done, yeah, so yeah. You've done the question. I, mean, I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have, yeah. Done a few times. So it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting how people who've done Vipassana have not, very few that I've known, I know, caught the word Kalapas, and I got it from the course itself. Mm-hmm. So, but it was funny. It's, it's nice that, uh, it's nice to meet someone who did catch the word. Yeah, it's the smallest, the smallest part of an atom or yeah, that's right. uh, appearing and disappearing. and That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you studied a lot. I mean, also, also Manjiri. She's she does. You told me she does the Wim Hof method, and she mentions like Rupert Sheldrake, and she's really. Right. She seems to be emerging of the like the Western and the Eastern minds. You know the science with the, with the philosophy of the East as well. Did I, yeah. did I get that? Yeah, I think so. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's really eventually everything is about union. Yeah, whether it's Western East, male and female, positive, negative, dark and light. Eventually, that binary, binary aspect of the world as we we've learned, grown to experience it, which is what yoga is, as she yeah, rightfully said. Yoga, yeah. yoga is yoga, actually, yoga, which is uh, which I learned from uh, Alan Watts, who is probably one of my favorite uh, philosophers. Is also uh, tied is also uh, connected to the word yoke. The yoke on, say, for example, a horse cart. The word yoke stems from yoga and yoga, which really is about bringing together. It's about union of. So I guess all of this really is about, uh, is about union. And I guess so is uh, Ethereus because it's union with extraterrestrial beings as well. You know? yeah. I mean, making that understanding that one consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Yoga means union with God, I think, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Well, I'm super excited. I've been listening to all your music as well. You were uh, you were quite the old uh, rock star there back in the day with your, your long hair and your... <laughs> oh yeah, you yeah. all those videos you've done your research. Yeah, yeah, it's funny for me to see. Well, I don't look at them, but when someone someone sees a video, they hey, no, that's you. It's always funny to look at that was me. Yeah, yeah. Right. But you the... was me. Yeah, you were the Indian equivalent of uh, you're a big name. You know the kind of rock star well we it, yeah things things kind of fell into place let's put it yeah there. we were really just a bunch of schmucks from bombay who wanted to play rock and roll at a time would have made absolutely no sense to do it but uh sense and rock and roll uh, don't necessarily meet very often we do it for the love of it and and things fell into place and the things kind of aligned serendipitously for us mm. we like to why we would love to ascribe it to all our hard work, that's not necessarily the case. Hard work goes into it. Mm. But there's plenty of people who've worked a lot harder than me who haven't been lucky enough or fortunate enough to have the same alignment. Yeah. So I look at that with amusement. It's, yeah, did all that stuff and it's fun, but uh, can't take it seriously. No, but you I mean, you started with Rock Machine. Uh, yeah, there were many band, Indian bands started as cover bands at that time, I think. Right. I read and it was, but I mean, no perfect recreations it sounds exactly like like not just any cover band but uh better than any cover band i've heard oh really well thank yeah. you yeah yeah well we rehearsed a lot that that was uh our work ethic definitely mm-hmm. involved rehearsing a lot because 
I mean, we just felt that when we get up on stage, especially at that time, there were, the, I mean, pretty much every band in India, the bands mm-hmm. in India, who were all cover bands, get on stage and then there'd be a little chit chat between uh, band members about what to play next and mm-hmm. a lot of time wasting and things. We didn't care for that. We, we liked to run a set from start to finish and know which song segued into the next one and where there would be a break for an announcement and things like that. So, mm-hmm. we said Manish Kalwamashi. It was also the 80s, it was those, uh, the big hair glam rock bears and the uh, choreographed or guitar players movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> it's but funny yeah. looking back, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but that but took you in good stead. You know, that, all, that, all that practicing paid off because when you start to do your own songs and you, know, you really had the chops, you could, you had the discipline, you had done the 10,000 hours or whatever and you, yeah, that really shows off. Oh, well, yeah, I guess, I mean, uh, yeah, I suppose it did. I mean, we've always worked with the, with the idea that this is something we love to do. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's in our own interest to do it as well as we possibly can. I mean, I'd, I mean I've, every time there was a, I wouldn't say bad gig, but gigs where I made mistakes. I mean, I've learned to forgive myself for the, the minor infractions, but I get off stage kicking myself. I could have done that better kind of mm. thing. So, uh, so we were pretty, we were pretty, pretty married to the idea that the less you have to think about it on stage, the more you will play music with, with truth. Mm-hmm. You feel it as much uh, rather than calculate your way through a set. And uh, you have a better time. You get off stage feeling good about what you did and I'm sure you had. And if you do it, if you have, if you're having a good time, there's a very strong chance that that's going to translate to the audience in front of you and, and they'll feel it. Yeah, you still see that in the videos. Yeah, you see that in the videos. I mean, there's so much energy there. The crowds, I mean, huge stadium gigs. It looks like amazing. Yeah, it's funny. And then you worked with Tim Palmer, the producer on your last. That's right. Yeah, big name. Yeah, that was yeah, that was a great experience. Yeah, that was a really wonderful experience. Never even met Tim. Uh, Tim. In fact, um, our keyboard player Zubin met Tim for the first time this year or late last year, early this year. When he'd gone to Austin to, I mean, he was, he was traveling to the U.S., <clears throat> went to Austin where we have, where he has a friend and mm-hmm. met up with Tim. But un- until then, from like 10 years ago, it was all done just via email and, uh, and servers. Because you lived in New York for a while. I know you were over there. I did live in New York for a while, but I was back, I mean, I was well back before uh, we even heard of Tim Palmer. So uh-huh. funny thing is, though, when you recorded the album, uh, the album evolved, and we were wondering about who to get to mix the album. Uh, what led us to Tim Reilly was an album that we were pretty much in love with. The sound of the album, particularly, we loved the songs as well. A British progressive band, progressive rock band called Porcupine Tree, and an album called In Absentia. And In Absentia was probably was well, not probably was definitely our favorite sounding album at the time, mm-hmm. just in terms of the mix and the dynamics and everything, everything about it. So what we thought to ourselves was, look, let's research and see who's, let's find out who's mixed this, uh, mixed the album. And I saw the name, okay, Tim Palmer. Okay, who's Tim Palmer? Went on online, went to Wikipedia and it was like, oh, well, well really? Pearl Jam, Ten, Ozzy Osbourne, Mark Knopfler. <laughs> Got good taste, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tears of Fears. Now this became, this actually became kind of, um, the thing that drove us to it even further. 
he also mixed, didn't just mix, I think he produced or co-produced the album uh, Raul and the Kings of Spain by Tales from Shears. And uh, that, at that time, when Raul and the Kings of Spain was, uh, was released, was my favorite sounding album of the time. So I said, okay, here's two albums that in their own, uh, in their own periods, in their own epochs, were the, were the albums that spoke to me the most in terms of sonic integrity and just beauty. So I said, this is the guy we got to work. And that's when we decided to reach out to Tim. Because, I mean, I was actually reluctant to, and I said, ah, this guy's too big. He's going to be too expensive. Mm-hmm. And our keyboard player, Zubin, said, well, you know what's free? Email. Send him a message. <laughs> so that's true. So I emailed him and uh, told him about us and how much we really wanted to work with him. But we're like an indie band from India. We may have a bunch of headlines uh, to our name, but, you know, rock and roll in India is still hey, singing in English to a very limited audience. You know? So there's, there isn't that kind of money. We don't have the kind of money that uh, rock and roll stars in the West have, not by, not by a long shot. And he, he replied the same day. He was really plumped. He got back and he said, I just went online. I saw some of your stuff. I like you. I, I really like what you guys are about. So send me some of your uh, rock mixes and we'll take a show there of the newer material. So we uploaded a few rough mixes of what we'd done. And he said, I like it very much. We decided uh, he gave us, it was, we were still stretching ourselves in terms of the cost of it, that I'm sure he was, uh, he had dropped his rate quite a bit. As he yeah. said, as he explained to us, he said it was, uh, you think these are not the days of the big NA recordings that he had been, that he spent most, many of his years doing. He said it would have been a different scenario then. By then, he moved to Austin, set up his own mix room. And so he was able to work uh, much more flexibly with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was it. He said, uh, so we sent him. The only thing we did physically was we sent him the, uh, the sessions, the Pro Tools sessions uh, via Courier. Okay. Courier then to him because they were just too big to upload to any servers. And that was it. He would uh, mix a track and upload to his server. We downloaded and listened to it. And uh, that's how we worked. And it wow. was incredible. Yeah, it was incredible. Mm-hmm. Loved everything that he did. Just loved it. Huh. Loved the way he worked. Yeah. You do manifest these things. I heard about how you got in the band in the first place. You just you went to see the gig, and you were, you know, shall I? If this if this band asked me to be the lead singer, would I accept? <laughs> Which is yeah, kind of yeah. uh, that's really manifesting. And as well, I learned thirty years later that it's called manifesting. I didn't know at the time. Huh. At the time, it was just a kid who went to see Rockman's Bank or Rock Machine and. Didn't know anybody in the band and suddenly fantasizing what if they asked me to sing for this band. Comparing it with another band as well, sort of doing an AB. There was another better, better known band in, in Bombay at the time called Crosswings. And uh, yeah, that was my little, my little post-gig fantasy as I was walking out. Didn't know anybody, but still thinking to myself, if Crosswings would ask me to join them as a singer and Rock Machine were to ask me to join them as a singer, who would I, who would I opt for? And Crosswings, slick, really together, tight band. Well established, rock machine, raw, little loose, but the energy. And I was like, okay, it wouldn't be the wisest thing to do, but I'd go with the newbie band rock machine because there was the energy that really, uh, that really resonated for me. And yet, a few weeks later, I bumped into the the guitar player while I was showing somebody else. Uh, well, a friend of mine had asked me to guide this kid in college. Uh, the kid was the same age as me. Uh, who was taking part in the singing competition. I wanted to sing and was, was going to be singing Time, the song Time by Thingshoid in the contest. 
And uh, so Patrick, my friend, who's going to accompany this guy, said, just show him how to sing it because he's not getting it right. And I said, okay, fine. I sang it for the guy. And then next thing I see this, somebody else sitting around there who was a guitar player, a rock machine. He said, hey, man, you want to try out for the band? And I was like, well, okay, sure. And that was it. That was, was uh, that's when I joined the band. Huh. I was reading some of the comments on YouTube and people said that, because uh, Bollywood came up at the same, it was in the 80s as well on the rock. So it could have gone either way. You could have been even bigger now if it had, if the Indian music culture had tastes had changed, if it was more rock orientated, do you think? Well, yeah, well, Bollywood was not really into the whole rock and roll thing at all. And mm. there was also the language thing. So Bollywood really is India's or film music, I would say, because Bollywood is really the Hindi language stuff. And then there's stuff in the South as well. Chennai, mm. previously was Madras, is also a big producer of uh, Family Apple, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they call it Tollywood. I mean, almost never end. <laughs> I hear there's a Lollywood as well somewhere. Oh, <laughs> I think I think the name Bollywood itself is is self perpetuating. It's mm. a bit ironic. Uh, <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, film music in India is really the country's main form of pop music. So. Rock and roll would never be able to compete with that, never will be able to compete with that. The closest uh, rock music has uh, gotten to Bollywood itself is through a movie called Rock On, uh, which, which is about a rock band and big, playing to big stadiums and stuff like that with a very Bollywood plot. And uh, the plot is a bit cheesy, as, I said, <laughs> uh, as all Bollywood shows are. Mm. But... Uh, um, I mean, it was the first time that rock music itself, and that's pretty recent. I don't know when when, when Rock On was, was was produced and released. It was in the last fifteen years. Oh, okay. And uh, but it was yeah, last, within the last fifteen years, and it was the first time that that uh, the Indian film uh, audience really was exposed to a rock band on stage as the main thing because it was really about the characters who were all part of a rock band. So there were many. Or practically every every song, as against the usual Bollywood song routine, which would be uh, boy and girl running around a tree or uh, alongside a river or whatever it is, and some playback music happened. In this case, the difference was there was a band on stage singing and playing the songs that uh, were part of the movie, which is quite a diversion for Bollywood itself. But that's the closest that yeah, we it's not very close. <laughs> Yeah, so you're kind of in a foot there and a foot, yeah, a foot in either worlds. I've seen you've done some interesting collaborations though on your own YouTube channel. You you are mixing up. You're doing other things as well. I like to work with other people. Honestly, I really love I love working with other musicians. Just people have good, interesting ideas, and it shakes mm. it up from it shakes me out of my patterns. Right, really important to me because I and which is why I've always loved. So when we came, when we restarted industry, when I moved back from the U.S. to India, and we restarted industry, there were only three of us left from the original band. And we had the blessings of all the other guys because three of the other guys were in different parts of the world. Uh, one of the founding members still lives in Bombay, but he'd, he'd hung up his bass guitar at the time that we first shut shop. And he said, that's it for me. I'm not doing this again. And he said, but you guys go ahead. And even bringing in the two young so. We're now in our 40s and we get these two, uh, a bass player and drummer in their early 20s. And that was such a beautiful shot in the arm for us as well because mm. it wasn't just uh, bringing in all 
young energy. It was a bring, bringing in of a, a whole new bunch of influences that weren't reference points for us because the stuff that these guys had grown up listening to was very different from the stuff that, forget what we'd grown up listening to, but we weren't even listening to that stuff necessarily uh, at the time. Uh, the drummer was really into a lot of metal, so Meshuggah and stuff like that, uh, periphery and heavy stuff. But they were bringing in these really beautiful ideas to, to the band. I've always loved that. I love working with people with new ideas, young or old, it doesn't matter. Different ideas. It makes life more interesting for me. Did you sing that song Fireflies from the last album? Yes. Really? That's amazing. That's a, such an English accent there. I really, that was no per well, accent perfect. I mean, you really, because some of the other songs have more of an American, but this is really, you sounded like an Englishman, English, so young English is, singer there. Well, so here's the thing. Yes, we, I mean, starting out as a band, you're very much emulating. I grew up on British and American rock. I mean, my biggest, my, my, my biggest influences were more British rock bands than American rock bands, but really both, both countries. The Who was my biggest influence group. Oh, yeah, yeah. and very specifically, but also Led Zepp and a whole bunch of others. Beat the Beatles, of course. But the thing is, a medium of instruction, which is in English, is British English. The English we learn in school and the English we speak is British English. It's not American English. Mm. But by the same token, as a, as a young band, rock band that's aspiring to being like a Western rock band, I mean, I fell into that whole thing of saying can't and rolling my R's and stuff like that. And that's not the way I speak. So I guess uh, maybe it's getting on a little bit in years and stuff. So by the time you reach Evolve, I said, I'm going to sing the way I speak. And that's mm. My accent is going to be an extension of, or not an extension, it's going to be the accent I, I use when I speak because that's, that's what's natural to me. Mm. And the pressure is on, I would say. I mean, post the album, more recently, something I'd done for... It was a collaboration, but it was a corporate thing. And I was pretty much, I didn't say can't, I said can't, but my voice was ducked underneath and the can't was, or the other singer, the backing singer was pushed through. <laughs> so there's, it's, it's a weird kind of pressure over here. People still seem to think that you should be pronouncing it that way for it to sound cooler. And I'm saying, no, just be yourself, man. Mm. You know, that's it. If, if you say can't when you speak normally, why would you say can't when you're singing? Yeah, say can't, yeah, it's okay. So, yeah, I guess that's probably what I did with Fireflies and the other songs on the album. Yeah, that's no, an amazing performance. Really good. So, Thank you. Yeah. So I'm honored to be able to collaborate with you on a, a track inspired by animal communication. <laughs> Me too. Likewise. Yeah. I'm very happy to honor it as well. Yeah, sure. yeah. I don't know what I'll leave. I guess we'll see what she says. I mean, do you have some ideas already or are you just going to go with it? I'm just going to go with the floor. Yeah. Really. yeah. I, I want to leave it to Manjuri, really. You know, I want her to do the talking. Yeah, yeah. Sure, I'm going to sort of ask her a bunch of things, but a few things. But it really is about what she's doing. And in when I first messaged her about this, I, I, she was she began with a certain reticence, but not a reticence to being a part of it. A reticence towards being the focus of it. And I think she's that's where she's going to come from. I is my suspicion. Is, uh, which I which I respect very much is that she says, look, this is, I don't want this to be about me because I'm only doing, I'm only following the work of a bunch of other people. And mm. I said, yes, absolutely. You are an extension of the ancient wisdom and indigenous knowledge that we're all now drawing on. 
And newbies like me are an extension uh, of that via teachers like you. So we're mm -hmm. all finally drawing from the same uh, source, from the same well, from the same bunch of wells. But uh, she's the teacher right now, so we'll talk about what she's doing and let her take us to wherever she feels is the right place to go in terms of uh, wherever the subject is heading. Okay, yeah. She's the, it's the way she combines the different things. So she pulls in the things that we she thinks the students can can benefit from. She's gone to all these different teachers and Right. Yeah, so that she's doing a great service to others by by being this catalyst and condensing it down because there's all, all the knowledge is there and it's you know, it's easy to say, Yeah, we are all one and uh Absolutely consciousness is everything. But you just repeat the truths in many different ways so that eventually we can break it down and understand it ourselves in a and in an experiential way which is the most important thing because right. otherwise it's just information i mean it becomes knowledge when it's your experience otherwise it's you're repeating what you've read or you've heard you're only speaking truth when you've actually gone through the experience so part very much everything that she teaches is experiential and uh, and it's it's there's a multiplicity to it as well it's not just one particular thing she's exploring so many different tools. So we've all got access. Uh, it's an introduction to the experience of using a variety of tools uh, to explore consciousness far more deeply and far more expansively. That's the way I'm seeing it. That's the way I'm interpreting my experience through her workshops. Yeah. I, I see people, I see someone like Manjari. I see people like Manjari as uh, incredibly valuable uh, to the world today, particularly the way it's the way it's moving. Because uh, you know, it's the river that's leading us to someplace really beautiful. Great introduction. I, Great segue. I can, I can see a lot. <laughs> you were just talking about you, Marjorie. Hello. Good evening. Good evening to you. How you doing? Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jack. Thank you for having me. Well, I've heard so much from Uday about your work, and that's why I'm really mm -hmm. great. And he's gonna he's gonna chat to you and pull out all these gems of wisdom, mm -hmm. condense it down into an hour. He's done a very long course, so I don't think we can cover everything. But um, yeah, I'm really pleased to hear, hear you two in conversation. Well, I will I preface the session, uh, Manjali, uh, while talking to Jack right now by explaining your uh, initial uh, reticence or reluctance to be the focus of it all. And <laughs> but but the thing is, yeah, absolutely, I'm I'm with you, but. That's what it all, that's what it all is, right? So, but yeah, we're all finally traveling down the river, but we need, uh, we need able uh, captains in the ship to steer us yeah. down the river. So you're the captain of, of the ship <laughs> I've been sailing on recently. And I've, I've been happy to have you on board. Cool. So, yeah, so Jack, should I start shooting questions to Marjorie or whatever? Please go ahead. Conversation? No, I'm, I'm, okay, let me start. I'll start with uh, my perception of what's, what's been happening. When I first heard about the animal communication course through my friend Svita, I was reluctant initially to do it because it was on Zoom. And I was like, oh, you know, something like this I would think should be in person. Until a few months later, I realized that Doing it in person seems to be, that possibility seems very somewhere between remote and not possible at all. So then you go online and do it. And then of course, you're realizing that it's telepathic, so you don't really have to be there in person at all. Mm -hmm. But from the, 
apart from the stuff that you were teaching us and the methods, the methodology you were teaching us, I sensed a much, uh, let's put it this way. I sensed that this was an opening into a much larger arena of consciousness itself, which is really what, I won't say sucked me, it really drew me in very, in a very, very beautiful way. So uh, that's my perception. I'm going to leave it to you. What, what is animal communication for you? What, what drew you to animal communication and, and what is it for? What is it for? Wonderful. Thank you for that question, Udit. Um, I think if we just first break it down into even communication as a concept and communication itself is very redundant. I mean, uh, it's innate to every being, uh, whether as consciousness or so-called non-living with a largely understood unconscious being, but we're able to communicate with everything, whether it's a set of keys and a pair of glasses to whether it's our own human body or an unborn child or another human in front of us. So communication is innate, uh, whether we are aware of it or not, it's anyway happening because no communication is also a form of communication. If I refrain from answering somebody, it's an answer in itself. So um, when we understand that communication is a part and parcel of our being and operational being in the time and space that we are in, why not dwell further and understand its many layers and applications was what drove me. And with the backdrop of what is called NLP or neuro-linguistic programming, which has to do with predominantly human behavior, um, it was a spate of events, whether it was my upbringing with parents who are mountaineers and our interaction with outdoors very early to um, one of our dogs falling ill and that propelling me to seek answers. Um, you know, all that combined, suddenly for me as well, then similar uh, lines as yourself, I, I wouldn't say I started as a skeptic. I was already, um, if we may, for a positive or some other word, say a believer or in acknowledgement that something like this existed, but I wasn't fully aware that it was a full-fledged body of work and awareness in itself. And uh, when one of our dogs who passed away handheld me into exploring this very niche aspect of communication, which had to do with telepathic awareness and working with animals. And honestly, it's a point of no return, as you have experienced it yourself. You go down this rabbit hole and then you realize, oh, there are so many other pathways and right. uh, one leads to another and it just keeps getting better. Um, so that's predominantly what led me to explore it myself. Can I jump in there to something you just said? You said your, the dog of yours who had passed away had let, pretty much held your hand to it. How? Um, so, yeah, so he had, so if I even go back in, in time, I, our, our first family dog was when I was less than a year old. Uh, was when a dog was got home and she lived to be 18. So she saw me literally yes. into adulthood. Yeah. Um, and I don't know a life without an animal around me. And it was so natural that you come back home and you have a wagging tail and a wet nose welcoming you at the door. And um, somebody who is, and uh, you know, a non-judgmental awareness at home is something. I mean, there are all the two-leggeds around you will judge you, but that four-legged being is the one who is in complete complete acceptance when you come back home irrespective yeah. of how crabby your day has been that's something one look forward to when that dog passed away one of our first dogs we just knew that she had lived her life um, to be 18 and ripe and she transitioned very peacefully however our mm -hmm. second dog um, went through the cycle of a lot of physical suffering which was why it led me to seek more answers 
and uh, I mean, you know, as humans, we tend to carry a lot of guilt that could we have made better decisions? Was it something, uh, a lack of right care that made him suffer? So there was a lot of guilt I carried for a while. Yeah. And that was a point way back in 2008 or nine when um, an aunt of mine guided me to uh, a video of Anna Bertenbach from South Africa. And when I saw that video, I said, ooh, I mean, something that was just uh, in my mind that can we speak to an animal or, you know, a lot of us, even when our loved ones pass away, we have a word with them in our mind saying, let's hope you're in a better place and yeah. you're, you know, devoid of any physical suffering. Something that I had been doing anyway, unknowingly, like most of us. But the minute I realized and learned that there is a whole body of work of this nature was when I said, you know what, I want to learn this and I don't want to outsource it to somebody, but we are born with this awareness. Why not explore it ourselves? And that's why I say it was his passing away that literally led me down this pathway. And uh, one of the teachers that I started learning with, her name was Maya Kinkade in Arizona. And, uh, you know, we had those old dial-up connections and I would uh, log in late at night and do that. She, and that's She's world-renowned, right? She's, I mean, she's she a, she's is. a big Absolutely. She's one of the, um, yeah, a begins, one of the pioneers that actually she's working with the UN. She's working with multiple, a lot of her students are doing PhDs and bringing this into mainstream. Wow. So Maya was very instrumental in making this very matter of fact. And there wasn't the, her, the beauty of her teaching was there was no structure and it was so natural. And she said, all right, let's jump in. And I remember thinking to myself, there's a dog who doesn't have a body. Uh, you know, when I look at that old me and the same questions come up in workshops now, I know I think all of us go through that cycle of learning. Um, so we're not doubting it, but I think uh, our conditioned, socially conditioned minds make us question the authenticity or the ease with which it happens, really. And that's where uh, one of our last dogs literally said, you know, now it's your time. Walk this path. And that's that's a one-way street. So, yeah. Well, the way you describe it right now in terms of just jumping into it, that was my reaction when I was doing your course. And you're like, okay, let's just do it. Start to communicate. Stop doubting yourself. And I was, really, is it that simple? And uh, so, I mean, I'm sure I, I'm, I'm loving the experience. I'm loving everything that I'm learning from you. And of course, we'll talk about the advanced uh, workshop as well, because that goes well and went well beyond animal communication which I was thrilled about. I love the animal communication part of all of it, of course. I mean, I'm in love with the animals, for sure. But that it went even further, I love. But uh, just in terms of the animal communication itself, so I'm loving the experience, but a lot of people respond when I talk about I'm doing an animal communication course. I mean, of course, I'm fortunate to know a lot of people who've accepted the crazy aspect of myself, so they're not surprised about it. But there's always the larger number of skeptics who will either laugh or scoff or snigger. Uh, how would one explain it to them? How would one explain to somebody who is not already open to the idea of being able to telepathically communicate with an animal? I'm not talking about a hardcore skeptic. I'm sure. talking about somebody who's on the fence. Absolutely. How would, you, how, would you, how would you describe it? Even if we bring in the hardcore skeptics in this discussion, I think uh, we are surrounded by them anyway, whether they wear their heart on their sleeve or not, or they may not say it openly, but we, we have a lot of them around us. So whether they are fence-sitters or they are absolute skeptics or non-believers, um, a few things that I realized over a period of time, and I went through my own learning cycle with this, the first thing I realized is we need to be respectful of their belief 
because everyone creates and carries a belief because it serves a purpose in their operational everyday life. Probably life has been really hard and harsh on them, which is why skepticism is what keeps them going and alive. Right. So first being respectful. Second, what I realized was the more I went out to convince them, the more I actually convinced them away from it. So I stopped convincing people. Um, what I did do and I continue to do and I also encourage others to um, see if it works for them is help these people see evidence of this phenomena in their everyday life. Something that they're oblivious to. Um, I mean, simple things like when they're making intuitive decisions while signing a document and a voice inside them says, you know what, don't sign the document till you haven't read it fully. Or when they're making a commitment, they're making a payment. Or something in their mind tells them that, you know, rather than feeding my dog, you know, A kind of food, let me feed them B kind of food. Um, you know, just everyday evidence and it's anecdotal evidence in their lives. The minute you bring that to the forefront and just leave it at that, mm -hmm. they themselves will start realizing, hey, you know what? The person is not forcing their view on me. I see evidence of this, though I may not come in out in the open and say overnight I'm a believer why not just start giving this thought and frankly what I realized there was when you just leave them with these concepts and ideas they start you've given them a new perspective and every day what was unconscious they start consciously seeing and noticing the phenomena in their life and before you know they're already believers so I mean if somebody comes and says you know you're woo in the head or uh, you know making a fool out of people say oh really good to know or tell me something I don't know. I feel the pulse yeah. of the person in front and choose my responses accordingly. Sure. But um, sometimes I'd say, oh, I was unaware, good to know. Or, um, you know, literally, as beaten as it may sound, tell me something I didn't know um, and I believe it as well or I didn't think I would get caught. You know, I've played, it, played with somebody and said, yeah, I didn't know I would get caught or that you would realize I'm making a fool out of people. But, you know, all marketing today is waking hypnosis anyway so whether it is this yeah. or whether it is unknown things that are happening um you know i i think um a lot of people join workshops now more than ever before who openly say we're skeptical and say wonderful because you know what i realized was believers probably don't come up with qualitative questions skeptics actually ask really qualitative questions and right. they actually from that space of skepticism get to the crux of what this is as a science, as a way of living. Um, so honestly, the least we convince them, the more we are convincing them towards it. So if that answers I the guess, question. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I get what you mean about the skepticism part of it also, because I mean, I, I always thought that I was born a cynic, a cynical optimist is how I saw myself. And there will always be that part of me that questions, even now. But it's, uh, I will say that for me, the challenge is between... Uh, and that's where the gray area takes place for me, is between questioning and doubting. There's a real fine line between asking a question and seeking maybe a validation or some kind of a, some kind of a cogent response to a, to a, to a confusion or, or a doubt, or actually doubting something. And I would, I'll say that in the first course, the basic course that I did with you, the basic animal communication course, just the fact that you brought in something as simple as ask the question to the animal and trust the answer that you receive. Every time you doubt yourself, you're creating an obstruction. That itself 
is a huge, huge step forward, I would think, for anybody. Removal of doubt. It seems to be the thing that holds back the human race more than anything else. It's <laughs> what's corralling us into this, in this very limited existence. We've convinced ourselves to listen what life is. We're unwilling to accept that there is so much more beyond that. And that's what I seem to be getting from first, your first animal communication course, as well as the advanced. But what I've also found interesting uh, was the reading material you sent out after the first course, after the basic course. And with uh, I mean, books by Rupert Sheldrake, of course. And um, who was the gentleman who wrote bio Biology of Belief? Uh, Bill? Dr. Bruce Lipton. Bruce Lipton. Bruce Lipton. Yeah. Stuff like that. I mean, that goes well beyond. It's not, I mean, that's not woo-woo. I mean, I embrace my woo-woo on the one hand, of course. But these are pretty serious dudes with uh, very, very strong analytic, analytical minds. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If I may just add a caveat here where um, I have realized, and I think probably uh, Jack would also see a different perspective to this. So there, culturally, people respond differently to content. And it's a cultural consciousness that also makes us either question the authenticity of something or we come as believers, even trusting ourselves, as blatantly racial as this may sound. But I think in a country like India with our, our own past that we've had as complex as it is um, and our population and the cultural complexities that come with it, I think each one doubts the other, the capabilities, and doubting oneself is a natural outcome of it. So, I mean, everybody makes a decision. Think about it. In, in the Western world, a child is 18, he's, he's encouraged to leave home, go figure his own life out. And if he makes some decisions, he has to own up to those decisions, saying, you made bad decisions, pull yourself up, you learn, and you figure it out. On the other hand, in a country like ours, like India, you are you are sheltered for whatever reason. Yeah, you are sheltered till the very end, and very rarely are we made to realize that we have the potential. Doubt is such a deeply ingrained aspect of our culture. So even when we have people logging in from different parts of the world, they respond culturally very differently to the same statements and content discussed. And this, the minute I know that the entire group in a workshop comes from Indian roots, born and brought up here. I know what to lay more stress on, which is trust yourself fully, you know, let go, um, ask the doubting mind to take a back seat. Versus if I have a half and half group, half that is logging in from, say, Europe or the Americas, I wouldn't lay so much stress on it because trusting themselves probably comes a little more easier to them than our cultural context. So um, okay. it's just one something that I observed. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. What about the divisions in, say, um... I mean, I will say this as somebody who is a very westernized Indian. That's, that's who I am. I grew up in Bombay, raised by very westernized parents. Uh, Jack was, <laughs> Jack and I were chatting. Jack was commenting on my English accent on um, one of the Indiscreet songs. And it's all part of that South Bombay upbringing. Yeah. You know? So there's a lot of westernization in my upbringing, but there's very much India in my, in my genes and my blood and my surroundings as well. And there's all, but how do you see the division between, say, the Western analytical mind and the Indian, uh, the Indian who's already attuned to, I guess here's where it gets a little weird. I see India as, okay, here it gets to be more Hindu than any other religion because Hinduism contains so much of nature within, in, within the pantheon of gods and, uh, and figures to be revered, you know? 
And yet we seem to have forgotten that if we can, if we have them as gods, then clearly we should be treating them better in this country because we are particularly very, very bad. We're very, I would say we are terrible custodians of the natural world in India in this period of our lives. But at the same time, culturally, are we more connected to animals than, say, the Western world, which has seen uh, humans being superior to forms of nature as, say, someone like Alan Watts could describe it? Mm. Um, you know, I had read a, an editorial in the Times of India many years back, about 20 odd years back, but I still find it relevant now, where the, the metaphor was a snake for India and culturally and religiously, where the snake has its head in the 21st century and the body dates back into prehistoric times. And um, I, I think it is still relevant now because as a culture, as respectful and aware we want to be of our Vedic scriptures and where nature was uh, was revered as God, our Vedas, which are our holy scriptures, contain so much information about just shamanic beliefs where every element in nature was God. You know, we I, I think we are pulled, pulled where one part of our society does want to subscribe to it, wants to dwell deeper. And actually the Western world has taken to it more than Absolutely. Indians ourselves, because I think our population is just busy, you know, just Maslow's hierarchy of needs, putting food on the table and so many aspects of survival and security. I think a priority for an average Indian today, running pillar to post and making ends meet rather than thinking of spiritual aspects, whereas probably people in the Western world or those who have more Westernized upbringing, I think we have privileged backgrounds where we don't have to probably worry as much as a lot of average people around us. So I think we have the privilege of really thinking about spirituality, thinking about what past our country has and exploring it. Um, but I think we, it's, it's the paradoxes in our country that make us so unique probably because we are so... Um, you know, probably somebody sitting across the table from us may have a completely unique upbringing in the same city as ours, but um, it's probably these polarities that make a discussion right. qualitative and us respectful of the past we've had. Um, yeah, that's, those are the first thoughts that come up to mind when you pose that question. Right. Okay. Now you've got something like part of one of the many things that you teach as part of Earthwise is NLP, neuralistic, neuro-linguistic programming. Which is something, honestly, I've done a bit of research and I'm finding it very hard to understand what it really is. Because everything on YouTube seems to be some kind of vague, this is wonderful for you, but nobody tells, says exactly what it is. So could you enlighten us? So I will start with the same thing. It's wonderful for you and all of us as a science. <laughs> but, if, but if we break it down into understanding what the phrase means. So neuro implying brain linguistic as a common man understands language, but it is both spoken and heard and programming implying that all behavior has a structure, right? Now, if we really simplify this, each of us has a unique set of linguistics we choose to use. Maybe there are repeated words we're using. Our internal world operates a certain way and that's what makes us so unique. Now, what NLP entails is as a behavioral science, very simply, let's um, take quick examples to make this easy. Um, a lot of traditional approaches and psychology work with diagnosis. Okay, so it says, okay, you have so-and-so syndrome or you have so-and-so happening. And a classic example I give for NLP is classic approaches in human behavior study the ill in curing the well. 
okay so i'll repeat that again a lot of classes of classic approaches on human behavior study the ill in curing the well nlp on the other hand studies the well on understanding what keeps them well so that there is no concept of ill right now for example um there is one concept in nlp called role modeling implying that if for example i really like the way you lead life or you make music i need to understand under neuro linguistic and programming that your behavior has a structure there's a recipe to your behavior and the minute i understand the building blocks of what you're doing i can duplicate it so something like an autobiography serves the same purpose which is why we pick up autobiographies and say i would what's the rack to which story you know the person started at the same level as i did how did he or she get a better outcome than than me or how can i reach the same outcomes so nlp basically makes life manageable easy let's take one more way to simplify it if a friend comes to us with a problem we give them 10 different solutions you know why don't you do this 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 but when we are faced with the same problem most often we are very dumbfounded saying mm, what do i do but if the capability to give a solution to somebody else exists implies that the capability to give yourself the same solutions also exists within us but self help is something that our brain hasn't really practiced so it is basically focusing on ourselves realizing all the resources we need to bring about change are already within us and how to work with our own capabilities in making life simple so there are multiple applications of nlp but at the root of it it is how you can make life simple easy manageable and smooth sailing it that's why it's a behavioral science okay i'm curious about the linguistic part of it is because language is always been yeah. my favorite subject uh, so is it is are you is there a is it a methodology of sort of recalibrating the way you even speak outwardly as well as inwardly wonderful absolutely yes and if we um you know from the linguistical perspective if if let's take english as an example now because that's the common language we are communicating in at the moment um at a very basic level we've done this even during our animal communication workshops we have five senses right now where each one out of the five senses the linguistics i'm using in less than 1 minute you can gauge what sense the other one is operating from right for example uh, if i'm using emoticons on whatsapp and i'm using more action oriented emoticons implying i'm a more kinesthetic person that means touch feel are more important to me so if i want to get through to this person and my linguistics are more kinesthetic and action oriented i'm able to build better rapport with the person if i realize the person is more visual where they are using more visual emoticons or they say hey you know see um i'd love to see you tomorrow or uh, you know can you picture picture this implying that the person is using more visual linguistics and if i speak to the person in the language his brain understands best i'm able to get a foot in the door and have a better rapport with the individual and what we are helping people whether they are in marketing advertising teaching training or even general communication is the more holistic holistic our linguistics are we're reaching all genre of people a teacher in a classroom may be a very visual person herself but if 70% of her class is more kinesthetic and auditory she's losing reaching to them completely right. but if she creates a script with awareness that incorporates linguistics from all senses she has the children glued in understanding content and recreating it during exams and otherwise in life 
So linguistics has multiple layers. Um, there is um, hypnotic language. There, there are what are called embedded commands. If I want somebody to do something, um, you know, there are very subtle ways of using linguistics to get through an individual. So linguistics plays a huge role over there in everyday life. Yeah. Okay. Slightly edgy word to use, but uh, I don't. I don't mean it in the negative sense of it. But it is. It is a way of manipulating a situation in a sense. I'm glad you asked the word manipulate. So the dictionary meaning of the word manipulate is the skillful use of hands. Okay. And ah. it, it came from actually the founders of NLP, the founders of NLP. There are two individuals who, I mean, there are multiple who contributed to NLP to becoming what it is. But there are two who gave it the classic structure. The one is Dr. John Grinder and the other is Richard Bandler. And their first book is called Structure of Magic. Because they realize magicians used skillful use of hands to create a magical effect for an observer. And even when somebody says, are you manipulating? You are manipulating somebody's um, awareness to get better outcomes. A right. doctor, you know, one of the people that's instrumental in making NLP what it is, is Dr. Milton Erickson, who, by the way, his story is absolutely worth reading and understanding so he was plagued with polio when he was just 17 years old he got himself to be fully mobile and functionally active again and went on to become the best hypnotherapist the world has ever seen and wow. somebody asked him this very question Uday, where are you manipulating and Dr. Milton Erickson's answers are something that reverberate in my mind till date he says a doctor manipulates a joint when it is dislocated. A mother manipulates a child to get him to eat and be fed well. Um, you know, a spouse manipulates their partner so that they have a more meaningful relationship. So manipulation, unfortunately, has a negative connotation and right. general understanding. But when you move something and metamorphose and shift it for better aligned outcomes, then it is manipulation, no doubt about it. Yeah. Right. Got it. Okay. Interesting. So communication is your thing now, but okay. So animal communication, yes, on a telepathic level, right. uh, neuro linguistic programming, which is very much language. But now I want to go to your, I mean, I'm, I'll reach out to my experience in your advanced course because I was, uh, I spoke to uh, Jack shortly after that and I, I think he noticed a certain glow. But <laughs> I was definitely, and, yeah. And, uh, no, I did come away, from, I, honestly, I came away from, from that workshop very, very energized and uh, very uplifted. I will also say that reintegrating back into regular society with every with <laughs> regular people is not easy after things like this. But that apart, now what started out as animal communication, which was your first course of animal communication itself. Now let's leapfrog to the advanced course. At a lodge outside a beautiful national park, the Kanha National uh, National Park in uh, in central India, but your course now has gone well beyond. It's taken animal communication and gone well beyond that. Talk to us more about. I'll tell you why because this is my mind was blown by the last time because it's it's pretty much kind of the direction I've been finding myself on, myself on inadvertently. I think part of it is deliberate, intentional, and a lot of it is. Seemingly unintentional, clearly there's an intent behind that's putting me on this journey. But I mean, getting into Ovu territory, we clearly, 
to me, it seems very obvious that we're moving into a, into a time of ascension, ascension on the planet, or a time of evolution. Let's not use words like ascension for fear or for scaring away the, the ones on the fence. Just in terms of evolution and expansion, now you were tapping into so many tools to evolve and expand. Talk to us more about that and where you're coming from and what your intent is with all of this. Well, I mean, in all honesty, about eight years back when we started our first advanced workshop to what it is today, it has metamorphosed and it continues to metamorphose each year. And I think it is only rightful for us to keep moving with the times. I think there are two parts to this. One, my awareness and experience as a facilitator and as a medium for the group is also shifting and changing. And second, I think our needs as a society are shifting as well. And it is only then doing justice to our, whether we call it spiritual needs, whether we call it our emotional needs, whether we call it our um, soul's needs. Uh, it is to feed all these needs is where the course content has been, you know, constantly shifting and moving. Um, in the first few workshops that we started, I was, I realized that the need of the hour was for us as a community just to first understand that there is something as animal communication and um, we can dwell deeper into it. With all subsequent years, I realized, okay, the the society that is signing up for these workshops, somewhere already are believers and are ready, you know, going to the deep end of the pool. So then we started saying, okay, where all can we apply? And honestly, there, what was happening was the kind of clients that came in, every consultation led me one step deeper into what telepathy could do. For example, during a consultation, um, you know, I, I would have things like the consciousness of an apartment join into the conversation. And the first time that happened, I was like, whoa, what just happened? You know, the animal speaks about something very imbalanced in the house. Now, when we are speaking about imbalance, it's not just the animal and the humans who are inhabiting that space, but the space itself has its awareness. And it's a no-brainer, actually. Let's think about it. How did you, you walk into some? How did you yes. experience that? What, what, what mm -hmm. led you to that, that, uh, that realization? So specifically, I remember one of the uh, chats I was having, this was back towards the end of 2009, early 2010, where in a conversation with the dog, the dog says, you know, this house doesn't seem happy. There's something in this house that seems really unhappy. And I remember sitting back in my chair with a live call. And that, that time there was no Zoom. There was no WhatsApp. I was on a phone call. And we used to do consultations or a phone call with the family. And I remember sitting back and saying, hmm, if the house is unhappy, how about talking to the house? And that came the answer. And I, and I asked, is this the house responding as a, you know, Sanskrit, we have a word vastu, which means a space or an entity by itself. And um, when, when I was mentioning earlier, it's largely a no-brainer. You walk into someone's house or you walk into a space and sometimes you feel really settled warm and welcomed right. and on the other hand sometimes you walk into a space and it unnerves you and you know there's something about that space where if you ask yourself do I want to go back there an instant answer is no I would rather refrain from re-engaging with that space and it is devoid of humans so it's a space that has its own consciousness so I said all right you know first let me spend about six odd months in exploring doing this myself with clients with cases and when I realized it is as seamless as working with animals 
I incorporated that in the next workshop that we had. Say, okay, you know, why not all of us explore it? Maybe another participant in the workshop will probably take it further than where I have reached. You know, they'll pick right. up and run with it in a different direction and find new aspects to it. So that's how it has been shape-shifting uh, content-wise yeah. to where it is now, where we are working with plants, animals, nature. We're working with elements within our body. And I think there's a reason why they're even working with elements in our body became so imperative because for us to be hollow bones and do justice to being conduits between an animal and a human, I think as communicators, we really need to first be respectful of our own bodies, respectful of our own internal um, needs. Uh, sorry, did I, did I lose you guys for a moment or? No, is, you're... Is the connectivity okay? Because it just stalled for a moment. I'm hearing you clearly. Sometimes the picture is a little jumpy, but I'm hearing you very clearly. So Sorry. All I right. know with the other Jack's uh, feeling the same. Is it patchy or it seems okay, right? Because it's I a, just bit, a little bit patchy, but... Um, okay. Yeah, right. I mean... The, we'll does it so the audio okay seems right fine. Just the visual is sometimes uh, okay. a little bit, but the, but the audio doesn't, doesn't break. Super, super. So I was just mentioning that I, I think I realize that as communicators and being conduits, we need to be respectful of our own bodies, just awareness of how the elements of nature inside are balanced or imbalanced. And that's why that facet came in. And um, I continue to explore more modalities that can make us better humans. And um, so whether it's using pendulums for dowsing and divination or whether it is shamanic um, wisdom to be explored, anything that can get us as a group of people to not only raise our awareness, but raise the awareness of anybody that we are crossing paths with. Um, I think that is how the content was developed into what it is currently. Okay. So what, what you were talking about earlier, I think everyone will connect to the idea of actually of a home having energy. I guess we've never <laughs> thought of it as something we can speak to because anyone who's looking to either buy a home or to rent a place, most people will say, will respond to the energy of that, of their home. I love the energy of this place or I don't get a good vibe in this place. But we never think about it in terms of something that we can communicate with. So that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I was getting from the, from the advanced course. I was telling Jack earlier as well, that you spoke about communicating with, with one's finances. I'm trying that with an investment of my <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be quite Man. stagnant. I'm waiting for a response. Yeah. So how does it how does it work? I mean, uh, nice. Yeah. Um, if we just go back to very basic laws of physics, that you can, you know, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. It's only changing form. And every time, maybe an investment was an idea in your mind. An idea is also an energy, and then you channelize that energy into a physical investment. So it's only changing form. The idea was already birth. Uh, even when it's money whether it is our body, whether it's uh, a land or it may be a dream, a book one is writing, a song one is writing, it could be absolutely anything. It's all energy that can be communicated with and there is an interface that's happening. Even stagnation can be a metaphor. So maybe if uh, money is stagnant at that point of time, it is literally we are a few questions away from asking that investment saying, hey, you know, I see you to be stagnant. Are you actually stagnant or are you in hibernation? Because they can be very two different things. When something is hibernating, it is waiting to come out better than, than before. We are seeing no movement as stagnation, but 
money as an energy could be hibernating, waiting for just the right time to bloom and, you know, come out and become better. Um, so just check with the question with that monetary investment saying, are you stagnating or are you hibernating or is there another option that hasn't crossed my mind? And then just, you know, I'd invite you to go through the typical questions that we do. Are you mirroring? Are you taking on anything for me? Um, you know, sometimes, uh, especially with money related things, so, so should, there is a huge karmic angle to explain those on. three questions. Yeah. Will you just explain <laughs> the three questions for whoever you're Absolutely. So uh, what I realized over a, over a period of time is that typically we see patterns in uh, how phenomena is unfolding energetically, right? Whether it's a, it's an animal, whether it's a child in the house, whether it's a space or money. Largely, we realize there are three parameters that it goes through. The first is what is called mirroring. So let's simplify it for an average audience as well. Let's take an animal. An animal actually acts as a mirror for a human. So uh, simplifying it even further, let's say a human has a smudge on their face. The mirror merely is going to reflect the smudges as as a as an image. Now, if we take a cloth and we are wiping the mirror, it's a pointless exercise because till the human doesn't make that change, the mirror is not going to reflect the change. So if an animal is classically mirroring for a human, he or she is only showing us an internal mirror of what's happening within us, either with health or behavior or our decision-making capabilities. Um, and the mirror, minute the human makes the changes, the animal foregoes that behavior as well. So there can be a mirroring. The second probability we've realized uh, as a pattern is what is called taking on. So let's continue the example with an animal itself so it's easy for people to comprehend. Um, animals tend to act like little vacuum cleaners. So they will suck out of a human what they see is either with health or behavior not serving a very positive purpose for the human. And because animals are largely earth and grounded, they, they are like a earthing wire in a plug point. What they will do is any energy surges in the human's body, they will try and earth and ground it. So they take on. And classic examples of this are where, um, you know, a lot of people with cats will notice it or dogs that are smaller breed dogs, people will notice it is cats will sit on the body where there are lymph nodes in the body. So in the armpits, under um, the neck or near the groin region where the um, immunity centers in the body are. So a cat may sit there and heal uh, the human in that perspective. So there is a taking on. And the third probability is that the animal is neither mirroring nor taking on. It can be the animal's own journey by itself um, are the classic three examples. But if we go back to the uh, reference of money and investment, the money as an energy can maybe be mirroring where there's a stagnation in a human's life, person X. Let's not say whether you, let's say person X. Maybe there is stagnation, person X's life and money as an investment is reflecting that. Or maybe uh, it is taking on right now the role of hibernation and it could be on its own journey. So you can just ask these three questions, see where it's the combinations are and then follow up with um, more probabilities to it and see where it leads you. Okay, so correct me if I'm, if I'm interpreting this correctly. So the fact that I can communicate with, say, an investment that I have made, I'm able to communicate because that, invest, that investment itself in a sense, is alive because it is an extension of my original intent? Is that what it is? 
Okay. Absolutely, yes. And actually, you know, how much ever you want to fragment it and say it is my intent, actually, it feeds into the greater intent of just the universal balance as well in some right, form right. or the other. And, uh, you know, another way of simplifying it is there are a lot of people who only think about making money, but rarely think about giving back to society. So whether right. it is charity or whether it is doing something for somebody, until that monetary energy is not in movement or in rotation, it's not going to come back to us. So yeah. sometimes for some individuals, um, money just stops as in, it, it used to be a perennial stream and it starts drying up and then they realize, oh, I haven't done charity in a while. So the minute I do charity, there is an outflow of monetary energy and then the inflow comes because you're creating space for more energy to come in. So it is not just an extension of our intention, but something that plugs into a greater good for more universal balance as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah that makes sense to me. Also, the other, now I'm going to dial back to the animal part of things. Yeah. In the communications, now uh, referencing what you spoke about in terms of animals, the measuring, taking on all their own karmic journeys or their own soul journeys or whatever it is. The fact that we've always seen as human beings, we've always seen animals as either annoyances or burdens or uh, helpless creatures who are requiring of our uh, beneficence or our help and our magnanimity. And I will come, come back to that, uh, that much hated uh, word, the term that uh, <laughs> of yours, pet parent, where human beings, and I see it all the time. I mean, now that you've, when you brought up the issue of the pet parent, I can't see any post on Instagram or Facebook that somebody has made about an animal where they aren't referring to the animal as their child or as and I know it's coming from a very beautiful place. It's coming from a deep sense of love. But there's a real patronizing aspect to it. And the way you've described it is animals being actually of a higher vibrational nature than human beings. And so therefore, the roles are actually quite the opposite, right? Talk more about that. I mean, that kind of, that has really shifted a lot of things for me. I will yeah. say that for sure. It's, I love animals so deeply, but now the way I see them is so very different. So the addition, the love has deepened, but the respect has grown so much. I'm glad you asked this question, Uday. And um, I'd like to highlight the work of one gentleman by the name of Dr. David Hawkins. And uh, American um, psychiatrist and did a lot of work in what is called kinesiology. And under NLP, when I started exploring kinesiology or muscle testing, you know, there's simple things. Uh, everything that we do in life is either life supporting or life harming. Okay. So for example, somebody says, do you want to come for this party or this meal? And sometimes if it is life supporting, our body sways towards it. And if it is life harming, our body sways away from it. Uh, now, these are things where there is an emotional energy with that act or event that tells us at a very, uh, you know, visceral level that, you know, go towards it or go away from it, which is kinesiology in a simple way. Now, Dr. David Hawkins studied human behavior and consciousness and went into the layers of consciousness in his entire lifetime. And uh, in one of the charts that he made, which is called the levels of consciousness, which I'll use as a backdrop, just um, conversationally, right? You know, for us to understand man, animal, parallances, specifically uh, for a modern man are, you know, in this chart of consciousness, he, he has put in his observations something like guilt, 
hate, anger, apathy really lower down in the chart and something as neutrality somewhere mid chart and something like love, forgiveness, unconditional love further up in a chart. Okay. And we're not saying something is better or greater than the other, but, um, and maybe each of us has this emotional vocabulary as well. I mean, we do have anger, we do have guilt, but what is paramount is how much time does an average human spend on this chart? So let's take a human and an animal. If you look at an average city-dwelling human today, we spend most of our time being, um, you know, angry, upset, frustrated, um, unhappy, guilty. Our education system works on guilt-tripping people all the time. Parenting is about guilt-tripping. So an average human spends a lot of time in the lower spectrum of emotions, which are life-harming. And an animal, an average animal, whether in the wild or domesticated, is an epitome of unconditional love, forgiveness, and acceptance. So they are spending majority of their time further up in this vibrational chart, which is life-supporting rather than life-harming. What then makes us, you know, feel that we are more evolved? Purely because I think we lay so much stress on intelligence and ability to speak out loud. And these are the yardsticks we're using to say we are more evolved than animals. But as vibrational awareness, absolute. <laughs> is an interesting example, yes. And, and these are yardsticks that we have created for our own, um, you know, to caress our own ego, if I may say that. And animals, on the other hand, really don't care whether they're pretty or whether they are, you know, how they look. And a guest comes home and they will roll on their back and expose their entire under sure. They really don't care. I mean, they are looking for their needs and what makes them happy. So even if we're just using this chart as a reference, we realize if we are that lower down in our vibrational awareness and animals are up here, He's not just a dog and it's not just a cat. It is a dog and a cat that needs the respect. Um, and if we may use a classic um, Indian word as they are probably our gurus in our lives and we have to be worthy of having them in our lives. So they are definitely not our children. Um, you know, babying somebody gives us this pseudo sense of superiority. Uh, if I may put it put it that, because it puts us in a controlling position that I make all the choices, but you're actually depriving that soul of its own independent, uh, you know, life choices. With a domesticated dog, we are choosing when they will poop and pee and when they'll go for a walk and what time they will eat and, you know, sit down, give give paw. That's an extremely high spiritually aligned being. It's not there in our lives to entertain us with give paw, roll, sit down. You know, other than all that, which is more human ways of doing things, we can seek their guidance to raise our own awareness and just be better human beings. I mean, right. least of a burden on the planet, but more aligned and um, in one with the fabric around us. Yeah. The the fascinating thing is how is how sporting they are with all the games, with all the rolling over and the jumping through hoops. <laughs> and I mean, there's no complaint. So is is the answer presence? Is it about, because you spoke about that, that mm -hmm. animals are always in the present moment and that's something we as human beings, I mean, we, we do, we, we go to Vipassana courses and we do all kinds of things to bring ourselves into a state of present while always battling this internal chaos of, you know, uncontrollable thought. 
is the difference, is the, the fundamental difference between animal and human being in the present moment or at all time? Undoubtedly, yes. And I think um, they are fully aware of their connection with the source energy. That means they are fully surrendered to why they are on this planet and they don't need to go to workshops to understand, uh, you know, what is my purpose? And they know their purpose and they surrender to what divinity within them asks them to uh, be aware of. Um, and, and when we say they are living in the present, a classic example is if you tell a dog you need to move homes, he will happily just walk. He doesn't need his toys, his bed, nothing, his, his bowl, he needs nothing. He will just pick himself up and move. And you tell a human, forget moving a house, you're going on a one-day holiday. A human will pack this huge bit fat bag with a gazillion things that he will never end up using, which means we're constantly dwelling either in the past or the probable future, saying, I might need this for my holiday. Get to the holiday and see what happens. Just bring your presence over there. Probably you won't need anything but just your awareness. And that is a major difference where one, I realize they are so aware of their connection with source energy and universal energy. And second, they are not defined by any of these materialistic things, which makes them live in the present more rather than live in the past what was or dwell in what, what will be in the future. So I think that defines just what their presence is for us. And we need to reevaluate our relationship or the way we see ourselves in comparison with the animal world in terms of intelligence and superiority or, or any of that things. But now, Absolutely. okay. So it's, but now this all goes beyond animal communication, animals and animal communication, mm -hmm. which, are, which of course is integral to consciousness. It's all part of the same deal, but you are expanding well beyond that. I mean, you had, uh, we did the Wim Hof method by the river, which was even those, even the three cycles of breath that we did was, it was incredibly powerful. Is that what you mean by taking care of the, the, the conduit, the body, in terms of oxygenating the body so it's, bet, it's a better instrument to be, to be playing this role as communicator? Absolutely. You know, in shamanism, they use the word hollow bone, meaning that you have to be so hollow that you are not deducting or adding anything of your own. And all traditional shamans or who practice as mediums made sure they were doing justice to being a connection between us two souls uh, in or whether a tree or an element in nature and the human they were doing justice by being as hollow as they can and when we speak about uh, you know we are not different from it as city dwelling modern people we are also i mean it's very challenging easier said than done to be in the present moment and a lot of us are either in the past or uh, the future, to being yes. here and now, um, what does help is all tools and techniques that can help us first respect our body because we carry our body into every situation and interaction in life. And we are probably most bereft of its abilities and capabilities of what the body, body has. So whether it's, you know, even when I um, was in active athletics, I realized that breath work was something that was so paramount and pranayama or aura yogic practices definitely the first thing is attention to breath. And I realized Wim's methods were some of the most easy methods that one can do in everyday routine life. And you need about five or seven minutes to put yourself in the right frame of mind and 
um, energize yourself rightly. So whether it's Wim's methods or whether it was just hugging a tree, it's anything that gets us to be more in alignment or in touch with our own body um, and be better mediums and do justice to what's flowing through us. And one need not be actively doing telepathy. You could be just uh, an Uber driver for all you care and you could be somebody cleaning homes and toilets. Right. Each job has its own role. And, you know, somebody who's doing their job, if they are in full surrender, they, they tend to enjoy it. They tend to do 100% justice to it. And the person, I mean, somebody who's cleaning toilets, a person comes and uses it and says, you know what, thank you for keeping it the way it is. You made their day. Right. but And they put in 100%. You as a receiver were aware of the way the toilet was and clean and both people I think did justice to the presence in that space so yeah just anything that gets us more aware are tools and techniques that we don't have so what's your goal I'm I'm saying are you are you uh, well I will I want to step in here just for this briefly that I think you're an incredible teacher remarkable remarkable teacher no seriously okay. Yeah. I mean, I've been through the Indian school system where I, mean, I had very nice people as teachers. I didn't really learn very much. I won't blame the teachers. I will not blame the teachers at all. Yeah. I will take on the responsibility of that. Of course, it was a very boring curriculum as well. But I, I mean, over the years, good teachers really stand out. I mean, very, very tall. You teach incredibly well. So clearly you're coming from a very, very honest and clean space. But your teaching is very expansive. So we've got the Wim Hof method. I mean, apart from the animal communication by tel telepathy, we've got the Wim Hof method, divination using, we were using stones, uh, pendulum dowsing, uh, remote viewing, looking, searching for a uh, power animal. It's quite, it's quite a wide palette of activities. How do you see these all coalescing? What is your, where do you see it leading to? What is your intention? I think uh, if I may use the word greedy here, in all honesty, I think I am just greedy that we as a species, if we are going to increase our vibrational awareness, even micro, milli, <laughs> mm in, in whatever we're doing, you know, again, um, the list that you narrated right now, as exhaustive as it may be, not every participant who comes on the workshop takes all that back. Each one is on their own journey. And out of the 10 things that are laid out in the buffet of engagements and experiences, somebody realizes that their plate can only accommodate two modalities and that's all that they're helping themselves to. Somebody else has a bigger spiritual appetite and the soul needs to feed itself more. So they may take five things out of the 10 that are laid out. So each one takes what they're needing. But whether they take two or they take five or they take all 10 things that are laid out in the buffet, I think each one is making themselves a better human. And as a ripple effect, if one person, you know, just basic again physics, one molecule's vibrational awareness changes, all the molecules in the periphery are going to change. So one human in a family, uh, a company, a group of friends comes with a more aware awareness. I think as a ripple effect, whether they're aware of it or not, they are going to affect that, that set of people and it's going to move on and on and on. They can't put their finger on what did this person do that's making me feel better. But I think my greedy outcome and intent always is that we are able to have more meaningful engagements with people. Um, 
you know, our vibe will attract our tribe. And other than spending time and energy in discussing things that are not life supporting, we are able to have more qualitative discussions and um, just become better people for this planet. I think that's a very vested interest I would have in curating these workshops. Well, actually, amen to that. Better people is what we need, and better people is what we need to become, really, is who we need to become. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I think that pretty much grabs uh, it. And you got a psychic uh, mediumship workshop coming up, which uh, has got my has got my antenna. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I didn't touch with Janavi already about it. So wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah, that's another entire body of work by itself. Just working with the spirit world and doing auric scans for people's bodies, health, awareness. Um, right. And sky is the limit. Yeah. Want to make better humans and make a better world. Absolutely. Wonderful. Just raise our consciousness and awareness as a community. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have to say, Manjuri, I'm so happy to have firstly done the first course and then continuing to do more to learn more from you. I really, really am. I'm very, very happy to have met you and I'm really so thrilled to be learning so much from you. Thank you. Thank you for making this effort and finding me worthy of this time and effort that you gentlemen are putting in. And if I can be the voice of, I was just mentioning to Uday even earlier, um, Jack, that there are so many people who work with Native Wisdom that probably don't have these platforms to bring their wisdom to so if we can be little flag bearers of their wisdom and do justice to them then um i mean that's that's the least we can do for them as well so thank you for for doing this to both of you and i'll have to i have to acknowledge jack's patience jack has been has been has has been messaging me for over a year now reminding me that <laughs> Maybe we can still do this. Are you sure? Can you still do this? And I did not want to be difficult. I'm not somebody who doesn't, who takes a long time to respond. But I was going through my own, whatever, life's, whatever, turmoil. No, William, you, he had such high standards for a guest. He said, I want somebody that really, who, nobody's inspired me yet. Who really inspires me? And then he mm -hmm. went on your course and then he said, okay, I found her. But this is, this is actually true. I couldn't think of anyone. I couldn't think of anyone before that. So I'm so, really so happy to be doing this. Thank you, Jack. Thank, thank you. you the, thank you for this privilege. Thank you very much. All the best to you guys. Thank you. Right, we'll, we'll send you the song as soon as it's ready. We'll, uh... I'm excited. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Have a nice evening. You too. Bye, bye. Bye. Jack, we will chat soon. Well, that was super inspiring. Thanks so much for that. It was really, uh, Thanks for you know bringing her without her, without your bring you're bringing her to so many more people now. We'll hear about her and uh, and her work and the strands that she's joining. It's uh, great questions as well. You really did a great job interviewing. Thank you, thank you. But did yeah. you find what she said interesting? I, I mean, I, I did. It yeah, it was super fascinating. I was interested to know. I forgot to ask what the um, what did she because with for the Indian mind she uh, she emphasizes be self trusting. I wonder what she emphasizes for uh, the Westerners. Oh, be good to know. I didn't. Yeah, what well, collective flaw we have as a as a as a as the Western Hemisphere? Well, I mean, I don't know her point of view, of course, but I think individualism is being looked at as not necessarily a good thing, right? I think the great pioneering spirit of the Western world has been fantastic in terms of exploring and boldly going where no man has gone before, so to speak. But I think individualism has also led to a very very fragmented world. I think that's being called into question a lot now. Especially in a world that's evolving into what's referred to as the 
collective consciousness, but I go back to Alan Watts again. I think I quote Alan Watts a few too many times as being the one consciousness. Mm. And so the, we are only individual expressions of the one consciousness. While we go on a separate journeys, I think that seems to be the one, the thing that's being called into quest, into, into focus these days is the, the difference between so-called community living, which has become a bit of a hypocritical thing in the Eastern world now. Family is not what it used to be. There's plenty of infighting in families all the time. And Western individualism, which is really a, a scattering of, of energy where everyone's only thinking of the individual self rather than the collective group, I guess. So maybe that's the thing. We, we all are, I, honestly, I, what she said, what I found very interesting, what she said was about how the Westerns brought so much back to India and brought so much back to us. I will say I have taken, I have learned so much about Indian philosophy via my Western, uh, Westernization. I've got mm. so much from the Western world bringing me back to my Indian roots. The roots that I ignored or sort of looked away from uh, for so many years. So I think there is a coming together already. The Western world is bringing back to the East so much of what the East exported to the West, but that the East has forgotten because the East has been so keen on becoming Western. Yeah. I remember when I was in India, I was, it struck me that the, the, uh, the East is copying the worst parts of the West. Yeah. You know, you were, you were bemoaning the, the government there and the, um, in the development and, and this, this group, but we also have a lot of good qualities in the West, which you could could copy oh, yeah. as well you know absolutely absolutely and i i think that is changing for sure mm. yes very interesting yeah and you've got any I idea for i thought any ideas for a song or i thought uh, hollow bones struck me as a good title or sounds good. yeah yeah, like yeah. Sounds great. yeah yeah that's a great start i was making up a few notes here yeah are you going on her next course then i am yeah. I I was uh, yeah I was I was in touch with the person who handles the bookings. I was in touch with her on uh, on email today, and I'm already keeping the first week of October aside, reserved. I'm pretty keen because I wanted to ask because I've been on a few of these courses myself, and I was always the only man. Were you the only mm-hmm. man on that on that course? Oh or was no, it, no, uh, no, it was quite it was quite a mix actually. A lot of a lot of women. In fact, uh, funnily enough, in India. Oh, you were the only man. You said yes. Yeah. It's usually more. It's usually more women than men. <laughs> That's true. But it was quite. A, it was quite an interesting mix. Uh, at least the last course that I did. It'll be interesting to see whether the psychic uh, and mediumship course only attracts more women, or if there's going to be any. any look. Yeah. Well, I think and you're in a. I just want to round up by saying I think you're a great role model for you know musicians and because you're really a thinking man's musician and that's really what we want on this show is is people who are you know working putting their thought i know you've always written great lyrics but now we can see i think people have got to see the man behind the lyrics in this interview and uh, you know you're really a thinking man songwriter and i really uh thank, thank you jack i want to move away from being a thinking man to a feeling man because that right. seems to be more. yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Change the hemispheres. Well, we covered a lot in this interview. It's really great. Yeah. I'm super inspired as well. Brilliant. So uh, we'll be in touch now. We'll do a yeah. back and forth as far as yeah. the song is concerned. So I'll wait to yeah. hear from you. Yeah, we work on this song for about a few months and it magically appears at the end of the interview. But it's going Wonderful. to be a lot of work for us, but uh, it'll be worth Wonderful. it. 
I have a guitar player and a keyboard player on standby. They're waiting. I told, I've told them the whole thing. I said, wait, we're writing, composing, start to record, and then they can show in their parts. Wow, brilliant. My part is in the bangs. Okay. Great. Can't wait. Thanks for being so patient, Jack, really. And I'm sorry to keep you waiting for so long, man, but there was, no there was shit going on. So. You were worth waiting for. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Thanks so much. Okay, mate. We'll chat again soon. Take care. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the song and the episode. The song will be released next week. It will be available on all streaming platforms, but you can already pre-save. Please support the artists by following them on social media and adding the song to any playlists you have. This is a completely free show, and you've listened this far, so I'd really appreciate it if you could pay us back by clicking like and subscribe. And follow at Podsongs on social media platforms, or subscribe to the newsletter at podsongs.com for special updates. Or just tell the next person you see about this amazing show where musicians interview their idols and write a song about them. The songs are available for download from the Podsongs website as well, which pays a lot more than the 0.00 whatever we get from Spotify. You can also email me at jack at podsongs.com to give feedback, suggest an artist and guest combos you'd like to hear, or just say hello. We're a listener-supported show, and I'd love to hear from you. A final thanks to my researchers, Dory Verbo and Rosa Marino, my producer, Maurizio Sanicola of Goldmine Records, and musicians, Massimino Vozza and Luigi Falcioni. The next episode will be out soon. In the meantime, you can listen to more amazing episodes in the archives. Until then, have a great day.